Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. The essay is a slippery and expansive form which can encompass both a dispatch from a cruise ship and an attempt to define the word camp. It's much remarked upon that the word essay itself originates from the verb to try in French, which gives it an air of incompleteness, something not yet finished, but which gives evidence of a mind at work. Wow, I really wrote some that thesis there. It's <laughs> 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 so not usually how my interests go. I, I haven't read it. that back in a while. Whoops. Oh, well. Um, let's keep going. Today, we will be trying ourselves to dig into the form of the essay and discussing some of our favorite essay writers, including Michel de Montaigne, Joan Didion, and David Foster Wallace. Did I really butcher that? I did. Only time. Yeah. Okay. Just tell us who our guest is today, Octavia. Joining us today is um, the wonderful Brian Dillon, who very brilliantly is about to publish a book of essays about essays called Essayism. So it was a perfect um, aligning of stars for us. Um, Brian was born in Dublin in 1969, and his previous books include The Great Explosion, which was shortlisted for the Ondaatje Prize, Tormented Hope, shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize, and in the Dark Room, which won the Irish Book Award for nonfiction. And his writing has also appeared in The Guardian, New York Times, London Review of Books, and Freeze. So he's all over the place. Um, and he's the UK editor of Cabinet Magazine. And he also teaches at the Royal College of Art in London. Um, and he's great. It's great. <laughs> um, in addition to talking to Brian, we'll be discussing essays more generally and also giving our book recommendations. So come give it the old college try with us for the next hour on Literary Friction. I love it when you go corny. I love so it. So corny, I'm sorry. No, I love it. Um, the revealing the true depth of yourself. <laughs> so um, we called Brian last week to talk about essayism. Brian Dillon, thank you so much for being with us on Literary Friction. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. And we've asked you to start with a reading. So could you set it up for us, please? I'm going to read for you the opening section of the book. Um, my writing on essays involves a lot of writing about lists. I like lists as a literary form. And uh, so the opening section of the book is called On Essays and Essayists. And it starts like this. On the death of a moth, humiliation, the Hoover Dam and how to write, an inventory of objects on the author's desk and an account of wearing spectacles, which he does not. What another one learned about himself the day he fell unconscious from his horse, of noses, of cannibals, of method, diverse meanings of the word lumber, many vignettes published over decades in which the writer or her elegant stand-in described her condition of dislocation in the city and did it so blithely that no one guessed it was all true a dissertation on roast pig, a heap of language, a tour of the monuments, a magazine article that in tone and structure so nearly resembles its object or conceals it as flummoxed readers depart in droves. A sentence you could whisper in the ear of a dying man, an essay upon essays, on the author's brief and oblique friendship with the great jazz singer, a treatise on melancholy, also on everything else a species of drift or dissolve at the levels of logic and language that time and again requires the reader to page back and wonder, how did we get from there to here before the writer's skill or perhaps inattention? A sermon on death preached in the poet's final days on earth before a picture of his own shrouded person, a metaphoric power of same, the womb a grave, the grave a whirlpool, death's hand stretched to save us, a long read, short history of decay, 
a diary prompt towards self-improvement, sew on my buttons and button my lip. I'm a dancer arrayed like an insect or a ray of light. Love alphabetized, life alphabetized. Every second of a silent clown's appearance on screen dissected. On the cows outside the window, their movement and mass, their possible emotions. What happened next will amaze you. Upon a time, a beautiful thing, set and judged by teachers. Proof because proof needed of what? Compliance, competence and comprehension. Proper meanness of ambition. But later, discovered in the library and under the bedclothes, or scintillations, stabs at bewilderment, some effort or energy flung at the void, and style to scurrilous entertainments, a writing that's all surface, torsion and poise, something so artful it can hardly be told from disarray, an art among others at the sidelong glance, obliquities and digressions, an addiction to arduous learning, study of punctuation marks, their meaning and morality, seven Dada manifestos, 41 false starts, writer's technique in 13 theses, an account of what passed through the author's mind in the seconds before a stagecoach crash, somewhere on the road between Manchester and Glasgow in the second or third summer after Waterloo. The writing of the disaster, confessions, cool memories, a collection of sand, curiosities, the philosophy of furniture, an account of the late eclipse. What was it like to fly high above the capital through silver mist and hail and flying was yet new? The answer, Innumerable arrows shot at us down the august avenue of our approach. There's something very meditative about, about that. It was wonderful to hear you read it. Yeah, I was transported. <laughs> That's part of the attraction uh, of the list for me is, is that it's partly about rhythm. Yeah, very much so. And that's what's so lovely about hearing you read it in your own voice, because on the page it has it has its own rhythm. But actually hearing hearing it come straight from your mouth was very, um, it added something really wonderful to it, I think. It's a really fantastic way to start a book because it's, as the reader, you're slightly unsure what's going on, but it's very compelling, I found, and, and poetic. I was quite unsure about it. Um, there, one of my favourite um, essayists, William Gass, starts his book on being blue with a very long list. So it's partly a kind of homage uh, to that. And it's a risk because the list goes over the first page. So as you say, the reader doesn't really know where this is going, if anywhere. Um, but I thought it was a risk worth taking because the, the list and something to do with rhythm in general and to do with sound uh, seems to me really important. Yes, and, and later on in this book about essays, you talk about the list specifically and, and your attraction to it as a writer and its affinity with the essay. And I think you you described the list as a container. So can you talk a little bit more about that? I think, yes. I mean, the, the, the list, when it appears in, in a book of, uh, if it appears in a novel, for example, suddenly changes, as it were, the sort of axis, the direction uh, of the, the narrative. Um, the, the great French essayist and critic Michel Boutor talks about this um, in an essay from the mid-60s. He says that a list in a novel uh, introduces a kind of uh, verticality into a story that's progressing serenely in a kind of horizontal direction. Suddenly something else comes in from a different direction. So I quite like that, that sense of kind of interruption. Um, and essays, it seems to me, great essayists of the past and today are writers who are happy with interrupting themselves. Uh, digression, which is maybe something we can come back to, is, is, is kind of essential to the essay. 
the list, in a way, is also a kind of, um, it's a sort of metaphor for the essay in itself, because it's capacious, it contains things. And in a way, it can contain anything. If you, once you have a kind of border around it, anything can happen inside that. And in a way, my book is partly about the fact that when I read essays, and when I try to write essays myself, I'm always kind of drawn partly to the idea that I could write about anything. You know, this, this kind of short literary form could contain multitudes. But at the same time, I want some kind of order. So it's the list, like the essay, is kind of pulling in two directions at once, I think. Yes, and you talk about um, the sense of incompleteness as being crucial to the form and to the form of the list as well, which is obviously, you know, there's something about a list that's about prompting things to come back to later. Um, and I wonder, as a writer, if that's kind of a liberating thing when you sat down to write this book about essays, the sense that you didn't need to complete the thesis, as it were, but you could open lots of different pathways. I think so. I mean, the, you could imagine um, a much more uh, accomplished book than mine, in a way, uh, a book that aspired to be encyclopedic about the essay, to to tell its entire history, to put a shape on it that I felt once I started writing would be a kind of betrayal of the form itself. Also, dare I say it, a bit less interesting, (laughs) possibly. And I'm speaking as an academic, so, you know, but... (laughs) A a little less interesting. I mean, those histories have been written, I think. And, uh, of course, I've I've read a lot about the essay and trying to write about it myself, but... I think that, yeah, from, from the start, really, I, I, or very quickly, I realized that, that I couldn't be definitive about this and that actually to be undefinitive, to be unfinished, um, was somehow much more in the spirit of the form uh, as it's existed historically and, and especially, I think, as it exists today. Um, in a sense, the book is a, is a sort of love letter to my favorite essayists who happen also to be my favorite writers, I think. And so... The idea of the fragment, the idea of something unfinished, um, seems essential. For me, that's slightly terrifying because I also have, as a writer, a kind of urge to completion, to, to making things that feel kind of fully formed, um, to a sort of uh, elegance, whether one reaches that or, or, or not. Um, and so it felt like quite a risk to me at the same time to write something that was fragmentary, that didn't have to, you know, nail its thesis down by the end. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the form itself, um, which are, it's sort of a series of short essays with topics naming at the top. But um, as you say, it's quite digressive anyway. So how did you settle on that form? And what did you want to accomplish with that kind of structure? Well, I, I can't think about this outside of thinking about um, about the essayists who've influenced me. So I was thinking partly about quite recent fragmentary uh, writing by writers like Maggie Nelson and Lisa Robertson. And I love the fragment as a, as a form, but I'm also aware that I can't really do the really seriously fragmented essay. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the tiny, tiny fragment that sits on a page alongside many others, and it builds a kind of bristling sort of pattern. I, ha- I, I sort of have to write in in thousand to two thousand chunks. I have to write mini mini essays in a slightly more traditional way, I think. Um, 
And it's also influenced by, uh, one again, one of my favorite um, historical uh, essays is uh, Theodore Adorno's Minima Moralia. And sometimes I think when, when I'm writing, and maybe this is true of other people, you hit on um, a structuring principle or a form on the page that seems in a way sort of arbitrary, but it does some work for you. And the idea for me that, that each of these had a, a title, the title runs straight into the, the text uh, of each essay, um, just immediately made me feel as if the structure would emerge as I was writing. If I simply had a list of these fragments, and so there would be a fragment on fragments, there would be a fragment on style, there would be a fragment on diaries, which are obviously related to essay writing. Um, then I could I could write each of these individually and think about the pattern later. So maybe that, in fact, now that I think of it, maybe that was the advantage um, that writing it as a series of mini essays meant the big question of structure could emerge as, a, as I went along. Because usually as a writer, I, I overplan things. Um, and this was, a, again, a sort of risk. It lends a really nice symmetry to the project as well, though. It's kind of a, it's contained within itself, you know, the form and the function. Um, you mentioned Maggie Nelson, who we're both very big fans of her writing. And I was thinking, obviously, when you wrote, wrote this book, you were thinking about essayists of many different kinds from many different places. And I wonder um, who are some of your other favourites, but also do you think that there has been an evolution in style of the essay, like this fragmentary thing that, that comes through, which I think of related to Roland Barthes as well very much. But do you, do you think that there's been a slide to a more fragmented approach over the last sort of number of years? I think, I mean, to, to start with Roland Barthes, um, because for me, everything starts with Roland Barthes. Uh, I, I do talk in the, in, late in the book about um, discovering Barthes, and I've written about this elsewhere, mm -hmm. when, when I was a, a teenager, um, a, a nerdy, teen, music-loving teenager, and I was led by reading um, music journalists into reading Barthes. And his strange combination of something that is, that is fragmentary, uh, especially in books like uh, his strange autobiography, Roland Barthes, or in Camera Lucida, um, is combined with an, a sort of seamlessness. You know, it's, it's, it's the same voice insisting always, even if the form is fragmentary. And yeah. I think that that's, yeah. that's one of the interesting things about historically about the fragment is that the writers who are most fragmentary, if you think about the great Romanian aphorist E.M. E e Ciaran, who I talk about in the book also, he always sounds like himself. Uh, it's, it's one voice insisting, despite the fact that the form is, is this very uh, shattered, crystalline kind of uh, entity. And I think that maybe with a writer like Nelson or uh, Lisa Robertson, um, something else is happening. And it's much more about a sense of a dispersed voice. I mean, Bart aspires to that in, in his autobiography, but whether he quite, much as I love him, whether he quite enacts that, you know, performs it, is another question. And I think perhaps there has been a, a shift um, towards something that is much less about a persona, a single persona, a single voice, and that is even more comfortable than the traditionally fragmentary essay is even more comfortable uh, with being several people at once. Virginia Woolf says about essay writing, she says the problem is to be yourself and not yourself at the same time. I loved 
that section on you discovering Bart that a pop music journalist and NME could lead you to Roland Bart. Um, and it, it, it sort of pointed to the expansiveness of the form, which is one of the points that you make. Um, and I, another one of the essays that you talk about that I was so interested in, and I, I have to say I hadn't heard of her, was Maeve Brennan, um, the Irish writer. And you do a really interesting close reading of some of her pieces for The New Yorker. And I, I was wondering if you could talk about Brennan and why she attracts you as an essayist. Maeve Brennan is, I mean, it's funny that you haven't heard of her. She seems to have um, sort of periodic revivals. Uh, she wrote for The New Yorker um, for decades from, I think, the 40s up, up to uh, the 80s. She is very well known in Ireland now because all, all of her books have been republished. She wrote very few books, uh, a novella, um, short stories, which were eventually collected and had originally been published in The New Yorker. But the thing, and, I, and her fiction is wonderful, she died a rather tragic, or had a very, rather tragic end to her life. Um, she was mentally ill, she was alcoholic, um, and she was pretty much forgotten after her death for, for about 20 years. She was rediscovered um, over the past uh, 15, 20 years. And I think that the most impressive thing for me that's come out of that kind of re-emergence of Maeve Brennan is a series of pieces she wrote for The New Yorker under the pen name, The Long-Winded Lady. <laughs> and for me, they're, they're up there with uh, Walter Benjamin's writing on the city or Baudelaire's writing or Edgar Allan Poe. They're portraits of this drifting character who seems, and she's, I guess, The Long-Winded Lady is only a kind of hair's breadth away from Maeve Brennan herself. She lives in residential hotels. She eats in restaurants. She seems always to be alone, whether she's in the street or at home. And she describes the textures, the atmospheres of New York in the middle of the 20th century in the most astonishing ways. And the, the piece that, as you say, I, I write about at length in the book has her sitting in a, alone again uh, in a restaurant in the middle of the afternoon, ordering lunch and then realizing when it arrives that she's forgotten how to eat broccoli. She doesn't know which end of the vegetable to start at. And it's just the most astonishing portrayal of a kind of mental disarray, um, but in the minutest way, focusing right down to the contents of her plate. And I suppose that's, that's what I love about Brennan is, is that her portrait of the modern city comes down to these tiny, tiny kind of evanescent details. And one of the things that the essay concerns itself, I think, with is, is detail. Yeah, absolutely. And the wonderful thing about them is, as you say, you know, these these voices that are very personal, whether or not they're a step away from the author themselves, but they they live they live long after they were written and they can be rediscovered. And I I'm a big fan of Benjamin's writing as well. And there's something that is incredibly contemporary in those essays, yet obviously not. Um, I wonder, I mean, are there any other great essay writers that you think have been overlooked, like Brennan was, perhaps? I think that um, there are some writers that I came to quite late um, who are now or have been kind of rediscovered in the past decade or so. It's funny, I think that sometimes with essayists, they're hiding in plain sight and they're not recognised during their lifetimes or they're not recognized until later, much later in their careers. 
for having been the great essayists they are. And this is because, I think, the essay appears in so many disparate contexts. You might read a great essayist in a book that has been published explicitly as a book of essays. Or you might read a great essayist in uh, a newspaper or a magazine or online. These things appear, or you might read a great essay in the middle of a novel. These things appear in so many different places that sometimes the essay goes unnoticed until much later. And so a writer for me, like Elizabeth Hardwick, who was one of the founders of the New York Review of Books, and wrote, also wrote fiction, and uh, her novel Sleepless Nights was uh, republished and rediscovered um, about 10 years ago. And it's wonderful, but it, it includes um, a chapter that she originally wrote as an essay for the New, New York Review on her friendship with Billie Holiday. And for me, that's it was an, an extraordinary discovery about five years ago to realize that this writer whom I vaguely heard of and who was writing book reviews, essentially, in a very, you know, a relatively mainstream publication like the, the New York Review was actually extraordinary at the level of exacting, rigorous sentences, very strange style uh, Elizabeth Hardwick had. And um, so I think that, that that's one of the things for me that the, the current interest in the essay um, allows us to kind of pick up on writers who might be quite familiar, but to see them in unfamiliar ways. We interviewed Kevin Barry on this show, and his book Beetlebone has an essay in the middle, which is the most astonishing thing. Um, but I think it really works for that novel. You write about the use of I in the essay as something that often ties essays together. And in this book, you yourself have chosen to include some very personal revelations if that's the right word, about you as a reader and a writer, but also you and the way that you've lived your life. And and I wonder if that was always part of the plan and how you think that fits into the greater project of the book itself. Well, I've, I've written um, what you might call sort of personal essays before. And in fact, my first book um, was, was a kind of memoir, even if I didn't really want to call it a memoir uh, at the time. So it was, it's not unusual for me to do that, but it wasn't part of the plan with this book uh, in the slightest. Uh, I really imagined that this would be a book that had an eye, had a, 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 a voice, but that voice would be essentially a slightly more distanced, critical voice. At some point, it became obvious that my writing about the essay was, was also a way of writing about myself, as you say, as a reader, and that there was a kind of, problem in a way um, to do with a sort of overinvestment in writing, the sense that writing might save your life. And uh, it led me just to, to write about uh, the kind of moments in my life um, where writing and maybe essays in particular seemed to be both a kind of way out of history of you know, sort of intermittent depression um, and various other events uh, like losing my parents when I was young essays seemed to be the thing that I latched onto. Um, and so I thought it was worth exploring that, but it wasn't planned at all. Um, and that I think is a sort of, or better or worse, um, some readers might think that it's a kind of indulgence, but it was really, it came out of the fact that the book didn't have, begin with, a very definite structure. Um, and so these, these moments that I, I suddenly found myself describing sort of presented themselves and now I'm reasonably comfortable with the fact that um, a book that sets out to talk about the essay might 
digress to talk about something else. You describe um, sleeping surrounded by essays and essayists, which is just this wonderful image. I have this image of you in, in a bed with, you know, ramparts of books around you. Um, and it's a wonderful visual representation of the fact that we exist within language and we exist in the context of all of these other voices, of all of these other people, um, which I really loved. But I, I actually wanted to ask, you are not a fan of the term creative nonfiction, and I, I want to know why. I... May, well, I hope I'm not overstating it, but I, I think that it, it suggests a sort of step out of some of the forms which I think great and actually creative essay writing happens. Somehow as if creative nonfiction were different from, let's say, straightforward history writing or reportage or even autobiography, that the perfectly familiar genre not already creative, you know? That there's a, there's a level of um, a sort of tautology involved in it. Um, I think that these terms, in a way, uh, for me, that's never been a useful term. But I think that these terms also become sort of quite neutral uh, after a while. And maybe I objected to it partly because it's a publisher's term rather than a writer's Yeah, term. absolutely. I think that's, yes, you nailed it there. And creative writing school term as well. Yeah, like it's all about mar- marketing rather than yes. yeah, the creation. I have no problem nowadays with, with the term creative writing, partly because I teach writing. And uh, I think that sometimes the, these terms uh, settle down and they become kind of neutral designators of, of a very wide field. But I definitely feel as if going back to the essay as an idea and looking forward, in a way, to the essay, you know, I try to argue in the book that the essay is is a form of the future, not only uh, a historical genre, seems somehow to open up something more um, than a term like creative nonfiction. Yes. Um, one of the things that you say very early on in the book that I loved is that essays perform a combination of exactitude and evasion that seems to me to define what writing ought to be. And I loved this idea that the essay encompasses, at least for you, the ideal form of expression. So can you just leave us lastly with, sorry, this may be putting too much pressure on you, but um, just elaborating on that idea, which I think is very central to this book itself. Exactitude and evasion. I think it's partly that, um, in a way, the book is about the fact that as a writer, I'm attracted to precision. You know, I, I like I like things to be uh, precise and uh, true. Let, let's use the big words about it. Why not? Yes. Um, and, and at the same time, I'm deeply attracted to the aesthetic, to extravagance, um, to writers who can wander, um, who can take us elsewhere. And that tension, because I think it is a tension for me, maybe other writers don't experience it like this, but wanting to get things right and somehow wanting to mystify, to impress, uh, to seduce, and um, and and lead readers on a on a, a circuitous path, a mysterious path. These things are always always working together. That doesn't mean that I think that the essay sh- should not tell the truth. That doesn't mean that I think the essayist has total license when it comes to acts. 
that's a great way to end it, I think. Um, Brian Dillon, it has been an absolute delight to have you on. Thank you so much. The book is called Essayism, and it is published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. All right, this is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here with Octavia Bright, and now is the portion of the show where we talk about our theme, which today is essays, one of my favorite forms of literature. Yeah. Very slippery form of literature. Very oh, like expansive that. form of literature. I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about adjectives? essays? I um I love essays very much. However, I haven't read many recently because I've been really enjoying taking a break from nonfiction. Um and uh, after finishing my thesis and everything like that I was really craving to be surrounded by a different kind of voice so it was really enjoyable actually to prepare for the show and just reconnect with essays that I've loved in the past and remind myself why the form is wonderful and actually it's a really it can provide a really beautiful bridge between um, a more intellectual way of thinking about things but also creativity and humor Mm. I love when essays are funny as well as clever that's my favorite kind yeah, and a bridge between the personal and the political and the personal and the universal. Yeah. I think that's what essays really excel at. So let's, before we get into that, let's try to define the form. Um, the French writer Montaigne. Very good, Carrie. <laughs> Montaigne, very good. Um, I used to have a professor in college, I probably talked about this before, but she really overpronounced all French words. Yeah, and made you feel really embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. and now I just do it myself. But anyway... Um, <laughs> So he first defined essays as such in the 16th century. Um, It was his attempt to put thought to his thoughts. Words to his thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Not thoughts to his thoughts. To encapsulate what he was trying to do. To give it a structure and a form that could be replicated or could be understood as a particular thing. Right. And essay, of course, means to try in French. So there is something of the incompleteness about the form. Um, it's it's always some an attempt rather than a solution. Right, exactly. Well, a solution would be a thesis. That's kind of, I think there's a nice communication between those two ideas. A thesis is a much longer, more definitive um, exploration of a theme, whereas an essay is a, a slightly more uh, dynamic, um, immediate attempt to understand something. Yes, I would agree. So Aldous Huxley, the great English writer, said, the essay is a literary device for saying almost everything about almost anything, which is useful for him to say. (laughs) And he also adds that by tradition, almost by definition, the essay is a short piece. So we've limited it here. How long is a piece of string? That's the real question. No, I don't know. I Yeah, we're not getting any closer. But but Huxley did helpfully define the essay into three distinct types. So which he called poles. The first is personal and autobiographical. The second is objective, the factual and the concrete. And the third is abstract universal. Do you think that's useful? No, because I would say that the greatest essays combine all three in one attempt. Mm. And I think that those, that's, for me, that's the difference between um, a good essay and a remarkable essay is one where somebody's thought can meander through space in such a way that it encompasses all of those things without feeling overblown or, you know, like it's trying to cram too much in. And I think the masters of that kind of art, people like 
Um, well, David Foster Wallace, for me, really comes into his own in the essay form because I, I, I still haven't managed to get on with Bloody Infinite Jest, but Consider the Lobster is a great collection. Um, or someone like Nora Ephron as well, who I'm going to talk about a bit later anyway. But, you know, to be able to go between the socio-political context of what you're talking about, your personal experience of it, and um, a more philosophical questioning... Um, is real. It's real skill. It shows real, real skill as a as a writer yeah. and a thinker. I think. So perhaps the beauty of the form is that it can encompass all these things in yeah. one, and that it's very flexible and can be longer or shorter. At the same time, I think there are many essays devoted to defining things, and True, so which I don't I, think we should mock definition too much because part of the function of the essay is to really vigorously radically sometimes um, investigate terms and definitions and ideas. Yes, and that is where currently there's a lot of really exciting conversation happening around issues surrounding race or gender or, you know, these um, human experiences that become kind of caught up by a mania of definition. And when you have that, I mean, the thing that troubles me about the essay is that it, it, it today in contemporary culture, it's having a much more... Um, diversified kind of democratic explosion into different spaces and areas. But historically, it's very traditionally like a white straight male uh, plinth from which to pontificate about whatever you want. And I think that there, that has to be borne in mind when discussing it as a, as a form, because traditionally it was much more, it seems to me anyway, about um, stating the fact of something. And now it to me seems more like there's um, more of an interest in dialectics for and against a particular position, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Although I, in doing research for this show, I found an essay in The New Yorker which was against, against X essays. <laughs> <laughs> Having that kind of dialectic. Is that a circle jerk or is it good? Um, well, it's performing. It, his argument was that those articles stop you from criticizing them by performing their own dialectic in their very title but then he did that himself right. in the title right, so right, yes right. maybe that sounds like a circle joke to me <laughs> but 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 could still be could still be an exciting one i mean the other thing i want to say is that i think the essay a bad essay is like the worst form of torture for me you know a, a boring essay or one that doesn't seem authentic in some way or one that is designed to make the writer come across in a particular way but doesn't feel particularly genuine and of course i can't reach for any examples right now but you know them when you come across them because you don't finish them you know mm. um and i do think that it's an art form that has more skill necessary in it than people may realize yeah. and this is the difference also between an essay and an article isn't it you know you can you can read articles that are approaching the essay form but they don't quite make it and sometimes the reason they don't make it is because they're not actually engaging in a rigorous enough way with what they're talking about and you could argue that one of the reasons why people don't acknowledge how difficult it is to actually write a good essay is because a good essay wears its structure and its thought and its um, mechanics very lightly. I mean, like all good literature, yes. don't you think, of, of yeah, any kind? True. Like masterful literature, you are so unaware of the scaffold that's holding it up, but it's so minutely put together in reality. Although maybe the essay is deceptively simple, more so than literature. I feel like I read many novels and where I'm really dazzled by the language or the structure. And I think some of the best essayists are such because 
they write in such deceptively simple but convincing language. I think Orwell is a really good example of Orwell's that. Orwell's a great example of that. I mean, I guess also because the essay by its nature is short form, it can never be as dazzling as a novel in terms of structure because yeah. you've got so much less to work with. But I, I see your point. And I think by the, the its nature of the short form, it seems a little easier. I also think in the essay... Um, the personal essay is a very valid genre, and many of the best essay writers were writing about their own experience. And I think that makes it seem more accessible to people in some ways. And it, it was interesting. Um, one of the more interesting secondary texts that I came across as I was researching for the show was an article by Laura Bennett in Slate. You might call it an essay. Um, oh, girl. <laughs> written, in, written in 2015. Um and she was talking about the the explosion of the internet, which has heralded this sort of confessional first person essay, which now seems to be the the tone of the day and has taken over many other forms of essay writing, but has been taken to such a limit that there seems to be costs associated with it. She opens with the story of a woman who wrote an essay in Jezebel about having sex with her father. Um, and... The Jezebel, of course, was very excited about this idea because they knew it would get lots of clicks and the woman was really happy to write about her experience and consented to it and everything like that. But as soon as she published the article, it blew up all over the web and she became the woman who write, wrote about having sex with her father. And there, I think that the point that Laura Bennett is making is that there are costs to exposing yourself in this way, um, that there's something problematic about it often being women who are writing these kinds well, of personal essays and, and also yeah and also the 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 sort of the um capitalist structures behind it and that the personal experience the harrowing personal experience is now being used for profit yeah absolutely and that's the thing about the notion of the confessional voice anyway is before before it even forms is associated with the feminine and this is something that you have in the split between these you know, the historical status of the essay and the contemporary status of the essay. There's a split along gender gender identity as well, which is, I agree, really problematic. Um, and when you think about the majority of essays, like I was thinking about it's a number of fat activists who write brilliantly and very wittily about their experiences, all women. Um, Lindy West. Lindy West yeah, is one for, forerunner of that kind of movement. Um, and lots of, yeah, lots of young women of colour writing about their experiences too. And I agree, the structures that are profiting from these pieces tend to be structures deeply embedded in patriarchal capitalist drive, which is a real problem. However, it's also better that those voices are having a platform now. And it's not just um, the old school kind of taking, the, 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 taking up all of that space. However, 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 <laughs> many howevers, I still think it's problematic the way that there is a hierarchy within how you receive your essay and where you get it. If you get it on the internet, for example, like the, the, the story you just told is a perfect example of this, where it becomes fodder that can be spread very, very fast across the globe as shock tactics. Or, or do you come to your essay in a, you know, a bound collection of essays? And there's, there's a level of authority in the, authority in the voice. If you receive Carrie essay, 10 essays by Carrie Plitt about the experience of being an American abroad or whatever. Oh, tell me more. <laughs> I <laughs> sounds like an interesting collection. Doesn't it, doesn't it? <laughs> but, you know, there's an authority that comes with that as, as, as it pitches the author as a voice 
who you want to speak on many different subjects and you're interested in entering into their subjectivity in order to understand what they think rather than the story itself being the sensation like I had sex with my father mm, mm. and I think that's I think that's something that it's really important to bear in mind yeah do you think that there's more of a tradition in America than in Britain for essay writing because I get that sense but I don't want to be um snobby I think it splits and I think it's funny the way it splits I think that the Brits are still not really quite okay with the confessional essay mm, I think they mm. still feel it's a bit touchy-feely in American however the uh, old school um very formally tight essay is I mean Hazlitt was one of the big guns in the 18th century and he was English yeah, to his. Huxley Orwell exactly yeah. but that is this masculinist and I don't want to bring it all back to that because I also think they're phenomenal writers and they're wonderful essays to read. But you really can feel this difference. And I think that the influence that's been coming in in, in recent years has very much been from Amer America. Um, and those voices tend to be more personal and more conversational. But I also think in your system, you know, wh when... Um, you apply for university, you have to write a personal essay, don't you? And we have a personal statement here, but I remember friends of mine applying to universities in the States. What was expected of them was so much more personal. Yeah. You know, the personal statement here is like a chance to peacock and show off how clever you are, whatever. And the one the ones that people were writing for the States, they were, you know, they were deeply yeah. connected mine, to childhood and yeah. you know. mine was about my father helping me get rid of head lice. Oh my god! And you how, see? That, how that represented his like drive to achieve, and how I wanted to, I, I admired his ability to start projects and complete them. Oh my god! There you go, <laughs> nailed it. I bet you got in everywhere you applied as well. well. I only applied to one place. Oh, dedication. Yeah. Anyway, that's too much information. But, um, <laughs> no, it's not. I think um, you know the, the listeners know quite a lot about me already. Yeah. You're the mystery. Tell us more. Uh, no, for another day. <laughs> I shall remain vague. <laughs> Uh, I, I, yes, I think that is a very good point about Americans being much more comfortable with personal essays. And I think maybe this sort of bastardized form that we've been talking about today that encompasses the personal and the intellectual and the political, maybe Americans are more comfortable in that space because um, they're, they don't mind somebody writing about their own personal experience in a way that seems confessional. I'm thinking of John... Jeremiah Sullivan, who wrote Pulphead, um, David Foster Wallace, of course. I think those are two writers who really excel at that kind. Of, even Zadie Smith, who I know is British, but has sort of um, gone over to the dark side and lives <laughs> in New York now and has picked up some of that style. Yeah, I think you're right. So let's talk about our favorite essays. Do you want to start? Yeah, yes, with pleasure and a little bit of trepidation, only because I actually found it... Um, very difficult to choose, having said that I haven't been, um, you know, reading essays recently. But when I when I delved back into like the ones that I love, I found it a bit hard to choose. However, I did. I managed it. Um, and I'm I'm picking uh, a Nora Ephron essay called A Few Words About Breasts. Ooh, because, I haven't read that. Oh, it's great. And I think it really brilliantly sums up what we've been saying about the need to be personal, but also slightly wider angled lens when you're looking at things um and she's just a phenomenal writer she has this wonderful lightness of voice and uh and the personal nature of it is that she's kind of she's she's very much someone who's made peace with the reality of herself and her own hypocrisy and her own um gnarly bits basically and 
Wasn't the essay collection titled I Feel Bad About My Neck? Yes. Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't know if that's the one that this one's in, but okay. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is all about how her neck aged at a different rate to her face because she never f- had time to put cream below her chin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but a few words about breasts is, is it's about the trauma of uh, gender expectation when, you know, being young in the 50s and the 60s. Um, but, you know, the thing that struck me is so much of it still applies now. And thankfully, lots of it has fallen by the wayside too. Um, but she writes about the fact that she never had, large breasts and she always had quite an androgynous figure at a time when androgyny was not appreciated or celebrated in any way um and she's very funny about shopping for a bra and you know girls getting weirdly competitive about their breasts and um the way that sexual uh kind of uh, uh, awakening is tied to these things that you can't hide you know like she talks about the fact that you can lie about whether you've got your period or not but it's very clear whether you have tits or no tits. Um, and they look so awkward at first. Too. Oh, my God. Yeah. Little bee stings. I know. It's, it, it, and she, she really goes into it. It's very, it's very funny. And uh, any female identifying person who has had an experience of breasts will have something to relate to. Um, but also, she manages to be really, um, really incisive about the obsessions that can rule our lives and rule our identities more than we think they do. Like a particular body hang up is the example here. But she's really looking at a wider perspective of how these truths that we believe about ourselves can actually change our path through life without really knowing about it. And then at the end, she delivers one of the best examples of when a swear word used with uh, care and attention can just be the most amazing uh, full stop, basically. So it's online. You can find it online. And I recommend that you Ooh, read I'm, it. I'm going to go read it. I think you'll enjoy it. it sounds great. Yeah, it is. It's brilliant. And her voice is just so there, you know. It's I like love how feminist you are today. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm pretty feminist today. I mean, you're always feminist. <laughs> but I feel, I feel like every point you've made has somehow come back to the patriarchy. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's been brilliant. I mean, I've been thinking about the relationship between veganism and femi- feminism this morning before coming here. Yeah. So that's probably why. I think I was thinking about, like, breakfast. <laughs> 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 you keep me sophisticated, darling. Okay. Oh, babe, it's a pleasure. Tell me tell me about your favorite essay. Yes, I will. Thank you. Um, so I'm not actually going to talk about my favorite essay, which, you know, as we know, the actual how fuck, can Harry? you really define what is your favorite anyway? But I, I wanted to mention an essay that turned me on to the form of the essay and okay. really taught me what it could be. And it is Shooting an Elephant by George Orwell. Very famous essay. Many, many people have read it, so I don't think I'm introducing people to new... Not me. I've never read it. I've read some of his other work, essays, work, but not that one. I would really, really recommend this. Um, It was written in 1936, and I read it for my English class in high school. Um, I had a really terrifying teacher called Kathy Thibodeau, who wore all these um, rings on her fingers that she used to clank, and she she had really long fingers. And when she described things, she was really expressive. I really wish that you could all see what Carrie's doing right now. She's (laughs) making this incredible gesture with her fingers and hands, like waves. Also, I worked harder in that class than I've worked in any class in my life. Really? I used to pull all-nighters. I pulled an all-nighter to read Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) You are such a fucking rock star. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, so Kathy Thibodeau, thank you for introducing me to Shooting an Elephant um, by George Orwell, which is really a masterful, masterful essay. So um, Orwell was stationed in Burma early in his life. And in this essay, as we are tipped off from the title, he tells the story of the shooting of a rampage elephant during his posting there. Um, But of course, this personal story also becomes 
a damning critique of colonialism and also a, a, a really searching exploration of his own complicity in these structures. And, you know, he's considered the master of the essay for a very good reason. I think I, I was talking about earlier about how his prose is so deceptively simple. And yet there is so much going on beneath the surface. Um, it's so beautifully structured. And for me, this was the first time that I really understood how you could connect the personal to the political, that his own story was the perfect window into thinking about colonialism and imperialism and the way that people are connected to the structures in which we live and how we are all responsible for them. And that really turned my world upside down in many ways. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> I love it when you talk politics, baby. Mm. Um, and so I just, it's a beautiful, beautiful essay and it was life-changing for me. And it also has an excellent first sentence. Um, which I'm going to mispronounce, but in Mulmine in Lower Burma, I was hated by large numbers of people. The only time in my life that I've been important enough for this to happen to me. Oh my God. Isn't that brilliant? So Doesn't good. it contain multitudes? Yep. Yep. So yes, Shooting an Elephant by George Orwell. I'll read it. I will definitely read it. Great. Can I? Can can we do a really quick little shout out of the other essays yes. that we liked? Because yeah. there are too yeah. many. What are your shout outs? Okay. My shout outs are Yo Judio, which means me, the Jew, or I, Jew. Um, by Jorge Luis Borges, which was an he wrote a lot of essays when Nazism was rising to power, and uh, they're phenomenal. But that one in particular is amazing. Um, Silly novelist by Lady Novelists. Silly novels, sorry, by Lady Novelists by George Eliot. The Wolfman by Sigmund Freud, because it's just so great about anality and. Um, you know, it's kind of wrong these days, but it, I, you should all read it. And and then consider The Lobster by Foster Wallace. Yes. Yeah, I love I have a thing for lobsters anyway. And, you know, the way that he comes at that topic, brilliant. That essay is so brilliant because you think it's going to be him making fun of this lobster festival in Maine. And it actually becomes a really serious exploration of, of whether we should be eating sentient animals. Yeah. And I've recently come I'm out as a vegetarian. Oh. so. Uh, I'm still eating lobsters. It obviously didn't work that well on me. <laughs> I do feel a little bad about it now, though. They can live forever if you leave them alone. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I still eat fish. Okay, so my shout-outs. Um, the first one is Contemporary Art and the Plight of its Public by Leo Steinberg, the great art historian and critic. Um, another essay that really did change my life. His argument is all about the avant-garde and the way that it becomes the avant-garde and that we shouldn't be afraid of our own reactions to the avant-garde because we're supposed to be uncomfortable with it and we're supposed to not understand it. Um, and he does this through the lens of his own reaction to Jasper Johns and how he assimilated the artist's work, but at first was very confused by it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, the Ecstasy of Influence by Jonathan Lethem. Joy by Zadie Smith, which I think I've talked about before, but you can find that online. It's amazing. It's short. It's wonderful. A Room of One's Own. I didn't know if that counted, but I just wanted to talk about it. I think it counts. Yeah. yeah I think great. it counts. Also, actually, that makes me want to quickly mention that the Penguin Penguin publishers do a series called Great Thinkers, which are all little books of essays. And there's a few of George Orwell's on there, but there's also A Room of One's Own. Mm. And it's a, great, it's a really great little publishing series that they do. Yes. So A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf, if you haven't read it already. Mr. Little by John Jeremiah Sullivan, who I mentioned earlier. Notes on a Native Son by James Baldwin, who is one of my favorite writers and speaks compellingly about being black in America in a way that, again, sort of changed my life. And finally, Sliver of Sky by Barry Lopez, which is a devastating, devastating essay by the naturalist about um, a relationship 
that he had with um, one of his mother's friends who abused him, which is oh, horrible, ouch. but amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. Also adding very, uh, just at the end, Bell Hooks, anything by Bell Hooks. Yes. She's a phenomenal essayist. I feel like we could talk about this for another I hour. I know, me too. But we're going to have to stop. Siri has bet, Siri has bet. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Um, so we'll be back in a little bit um, to talk about our book recommendations. All right, Octavia, what's your recommendation? Okay, well, my wanton book safari has been continuing and I've been slutting it around with about five different things. But I want to recommend something that I've actually finished. Um, Good for you. Right? I'm so proud. The finisher. After Brian and, and his, his love yeah. of completion. I'm kind of, um, I'm into that. You're soaking up his aura. Totally. I'm going to sleep that with his book by really my bed. That sounds very really creepy, baby. Don't worry about it. Um, my recommendation today is Swing Time by Zadie Smith, which I finally got round to, to being able to read. Um, and I would read pretty much anything written by Zadie Smith. I think she's a phenomenal writer and a wonderful voice. Um, but I didn't enjoy her last novel that much, N.W., so I was a bit trepidatious when I stepped towards this one. And uh, it's a tricky book. It's definitely not a perfect novel, but... I don't know why we always expect Zadie Smith to be perfect. She seems to get held to a higher task than than other writers. Um, it's very funny. It's very, very incisive and witty and, you know, brutal observations about human nature, which is one of her best things. Um, but it's also a story about friendship. And, you know, she often writes about female friendship and what happens when people's lives take very divergent courses. Um, and that's very much part of this story. But she she is also looking at nationality and race and identity. And it's a very um, it's a book that contains a lot of motion. And the title is because it's very much about dance and music and the way that she brings those other art forms into the writing is really, really wonderful. And it is actually a very musical piece. And at times, like in challenging music, there's dissonance and then there's assonance. And it's yeah, it's it's fabulous. And by the time I finished it, I was completely sold on it. Um, I, the the plot I'm not going to go into in depth because it's it's fairly complicated, but it's basically about this this young woman and her childhood friend Tracy and the, the way that their lives take completely different forms. But there's also a character that kind of functions as a um, a symbol of massive eat yourself fame um, of the Lady Gaga and Madonna variety. And so it's also a really interesting look at what that does to humanity and the humans around that star and the star themselves. so yeah, read it. It's yeah. great. I did. I talked. I think I talked about it a very long time ago as something that I wanted to read you and did, have yeah. not yet read. So it's wonderful to hear your recommendation. Yeah, and also just the other thing about it was it was so great to sink into like a really meaty full novel and just allow myself to be transported. I read it in about three days. Mm. Just nailed it. Well, it's interesting because the book I'm going to recommend is another one of those meaty sink into emerge after three days having been in a world completely absorbed novels. Um, It's called Homegoing by Yagayasi, and I'm not sure if that's how to pronounce her name, so I apologize. I really should have looked that up. Um, You may have heard of this novel. I don't know if you have, Octavia. I haven't heard of it. Yeah, it's had a ton of buzz. It has this beautiful cover with lots of reds and golds and yellows. I Um, I know I love a good cover. And she was just selected as one of Grant's Best American Novelists Under 40, which we know is an arbitrary list, but has sort of thrust her onto the literary scene. Um, She was uh, born in Ghana and grew up in Alabama. 
the central premise is basically that during the late 18th century in what is now Ghana, two sisters from the Fonte tribe are separated. Um, one sister's family eventually are sold into slavery in America, and the other sister's family stay in Ghana. And the novel is written so that each chapter is a new person from the next generation of each of the two families. Oh, interesting. So it's incredibly ambitious, yeah. and it could so easily fall down. But I think it, it's very successful. She somehow manages to make every single chapter instantly absorbing, and every character their own individual while also using them as sort of ciphers for the sweep of history, both in America and in Ghana, um, and to talk about things like racism and slavery and institutions. Um, and you really care about these characters, but also you care about these families in a way that doesn't often happen in literature, I think, to to get the sense of generations. Um, we interviewed Sarah Taylor on the show who wrote the book The Shore and it reminded me a bit of that. Yeah, it's also making me think of A Suitable Boy as well. With Vikram Sene, yeah. obviously it's, pro- it's probably not as long. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, I think it's like 300 pages. So I want to read if it. As yeah. a gateway drug to Vikram Seth, maybe okay, this perfect. is the right thing to do. I mean, the language is not revelatory, I would say, but it is just a really good read. Also, it sounds like it's doing plenty. Yes, you know, yeah. Without needing to be revelatory linguistically also. Yeah, I know. I, I just hold books up to you a high do. standard. You do. You're the hard taskmaster. So, <laughs> so if you do want to get lost in a book and think about how the decisions that our ancestors have made impact upon what we do today and the, and the situations that our ancestors were forced into impacts on how we live today. I would really recommend it, Homegoing. I'll be adding it to my list. Great. So a book that I have read recently, and in fact, I write about it in my own book, it, it sort of snuck in uh, just before my deadline, um, is a collection of essays by Muriel Spark um, called The Informed Heir. And it covers essays from, I think, the 50s up to, up to the 80s or, uh, and beyond. And to my huge shame, I had never read any of Muriel Sparks' fiction. And I came across this essay, um, this collection by chance, and it's been a real revelation. Uh, I think that possibly I avoided reading Spark because her reputation as a writer of extreme cleanliness and exactitude was kind of attractive to me. But at the same time, I felt as if she was probably a writer from whom I would want more, more in terms of the language. It turns out that her language, the kind of crystalline quality of it, um, is absolutely extraordinary and strange um, and also skewed um, and coming at things from uh, strange slanted angles. So one of the great essays in, in, in this book, and it includes very... Uh, short and apparently almost trivial pieces about uh, places she's visited, about cats, about her daily life. And it includes book reviews, uh, pieces of memoir and so on. But one of the great essays is about the death of her, or it's written around the death of her father. And it has her sitting in a hotel in the centre of Edinburgh, having gone home to, to, to Scotland because she knew that her father was dying. And sitting in this hotel room near the hospital where he was and waking up uh, in the morning and looking out the window and realizing um, that the city was still there as if somehow this was a surprise, that the buildings around her were still there, as, as if somehow they might have vanished. 
And it's, that's an extraordinary image to me of a particular state of mind that one gets into at those moments in life, you know, when somebody else uh, is ill or dying, and something shocking or, or deeply sad happens. And that sense of, of dislocation, but literally, it's a cliche when people talk about the, those intense moments uh, in, in life, a cliche to say that it seems unreal. She captures it in just this very, very strange image as, as if as if the Castle Mount in, um, in Edinburgh uh, might have vanished overnight. That's beautiful. I've read, I've read her, yeah, it's perfect. perfect. I've read her fiction, but I've, I've never read her essays and I loved reading you write about them and I loved hearing you speak about them. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Brian, you've been a t- total treat. Yes. <laughs> So that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our guest Brian Dillon and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on ncs.live. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And please, if you like what we do, rate and review us because it helps us reach more listeners. Yes, and we are very excited that we were 51, as high as 51, maybe higher, on the iTunes charts. Yes. this week this week are we allowed to brag about that yes i think so okay and that's all because some of you rated and reviewed us and we are so grateful yes thank you everyone it's all due to our lovely listeners always we'll be back in a month until then i'm carrie plitt with octavia bright and this is literary friction